So today I get the opportunity to sit down with Coach Reed Maltby. Um, you know, Coach Reed's story, it kind of goes all over the place, but he were originally a soccer coach. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Yes. And then uh, in 2015, you did a TED Talk. Was that 15 or 16? 15. Yes. And uh, that's kind of what got you, got you started on this kind of next stage of your coaching career because you're still a coach you know what I mean I, I still am I still am at heart and every once in a while I get out and actually do coach so uh, but I you know, I miss being out there full-time but I'm definitely in a different stage now because I'm typically coaching coaches yeah that's awesome so how did um, how did you go from an athlete coach to um, a coach's coach what what's kind of your story there after the TEDx, uh, I, it was always my goal. I wanted to help others sort of to create those same environments that I'd had created for me by my mentors and that I'd seen by other people. And so after the TEDx, uh, organizations started reaching out to me and asking me to come out and talk with them and meet with their coaches or meet with their parents, meet with their athletes. And uh, one thing led to another. It's like, you, you know, you start working with small groups, small schools, uh, single teams, uh, high schools. Next thing you know, a governing body brings you in. And so I've worked with national governing bodies. I've worked with large clubs. I've been to Midland. <laughs> I've worked yep. with Midland Aquatics. Uh, and, uh, and, and so as I got deeper into it, um, Jane Nelson, who st uh, started the positive discipline movement back about 40 some years ago, She'd, she'd done positive discipline in the classroom. She'd done it in the workplace. She'd done uh, communication in relationships. She'd done it uh, in different Montessori, you know, Montessori schools. So she'd done positive discipline all over the place. And one area she hadn't entered into yet was sports. So she approached me and asked me if I'd be, I had taken one of her classes and she saw that I was in the class and then she saw my TEDx and said, gosh, this is, like, that's, you're the coach I'm looking for. So she asked me if I'd be interested in doing tool cards with her and that, that really shifted the mindset away from I'm still going to be a coach and I'm still going to work to, wow, I, I'm, I'm really coaching coaches now. And she talked to me about that scale, that if we do these tool cards together and then you start working with organizations really on helping coaches, she said, you know, you can reach 100 kids a year or you can reach 100 coaches a year who each are reaching 100 kids a year. So she, she really talked to me about how I can scale out and reach even more people and pass the message along further if I started doing the coaches, the co coaching the coaches. Yeah. And, you know, your TEDx talk, uh, the title, I might get it wrong. It's Echoes, Echoes from the Field? Echoes Beyond the Game. Echoes Beyond the Game. There we go. So what, um, by the way, if you, um, everybody listening to this, you should go check that out. Um, it's really good, especially the intro to it. <laughs> uh, what kind of inspired that? That was inspired by my wife, actually. I was coming home every day. Uh, well, not every day, but on a regular basis, talking about what I was experiencing in training, what I had experienced as an athlete, and then what I was seeing around me. And then we'd go out on the weekends and we'd see certain coaching behaviors and certain behaviors at the fields that just didn't seem to fit that milieu. And and they also didn't mesh well with the science. I was coming off of having gotten a master's in sport behavior and performance. And at that point, I'd gotten a second one in early childhood development. So I had a good, at least academic grasp of learning environments and how children learn and how they're reacting within these certain environments and, and then the psychology behind it. And so I kept saying to her, I said, I just, I feel like there's a different way we can do things. I don't, I feel like we can do it without screaming at the kids, without demeaning them, without belittling, without making them compare themselves to their peers. And so she said, honey, 
you've talked to me about it every chance you get. She says, and this is great, but I'm an audience of one. She said, you know, that she saw the thing for the TEDx and said, why don't you do a TEDx talk and tell more people, share your, it's a message worth sharing. So you might as well. And so she was really the catalyst for doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, uh, as, so I coach primarily 13, 14s. Um, I work with our high schoolers too, but you know, all youth, um, man, it is, it is rough sometimes to watch how some coaches talk to kids. And as much as I love, as much as I love swimming, I'm like, this ain't worth screaming, screaming to a kid about their performance, especially, you know, I mean, coaches get on to kids for being disrespectful or, you know, something bad, but it's like performing poorly, man, there's that that's a little much. And, um, you know, when you came out to Midland, uh, still remember to this day, you spoke to our entire team. It was a, it was a room of at the time. So at that time, by the way, we were about like 225 athletes. Uh, we are now over 400 athletes on the team. Wow. Yeah, we're really, that's awesome. Really proud. I've been here 11 years. <laughs> so, um, that's fantastic. But the first thing you did was you gave everybody a post it. And um, you said, okay, I want everybody to write down what they love about the sport. And you had everybody write it down and they brought it up and they, we had different sections on the wall, but the overwhelmingly big section was um, like they do it for their friends or they do it because it's fun. Right. So how do, how do us as coaches keep the, because Coaches, we want to perform. At the end of the day, we're in sports. We want to perform. Performance is good. It's a piece of it. How do we keep our eyes on both of those things at the same time? So there's a couple pieces at play here from a psychological perspective that you can leverage, and that is one, intrinsic motivation. When somebody says they're doing something for fun, they're intrinsically motivated to do it. When they're there for those types of intrinsic rewards, it's so much easier to motivate them to compete at their highest levels. And so if athletes are being forced to be there, if they're there because that's what they expected of them, if they're there because their parents are making them, if they're there because they're afraid of the coach, whatever the reason, then they're starting to lose some of that motivation within the sport itself. So keeping it fun, keeping it light, keeping it exciting. In other words, your goal as a coach is to get them to come back the next time. Every time they return to your training sessions, you have an opportunity to, to, to draw more out of them and to provide more opportunities for them to grow. And so your, your one goal is to make sure they come back and is to create these fun environments. So if you study Amanda Visick's work and fun maps, you can see that their fun is, just, is defined so many different ways. And so it's not what people think. It's not skipping around, as they say in Major League, lollygagging the ball around the infield. It's, it's not that kind of behavior. It's not, it's not always just goofiness. Fun can be competing at your very hardest. Fun can be being with your friends. Fun can be winning. Fun can be, you know, but winning was like 63 on the list of items. It was way down. Yeah. So your first goal is to, to create fun. One of the other factors at play, another psychological piece is locus of control. When people have an internal locus of control, then they're ten, they tend again to remain intrinsically motivated to do an, an activity and they will compete harder. But as they tend to see control pulled away from them and it becomes external, it, it becomes more of a battle for them for control than it does to actually compete at their very best. And so sometimes these behaviors that we see, especially in younger athletes, that look like acting out or disobedience, they are calls for help 
to allow them to have some control over the situation again. They can't drive, so they have to rely on somebody to get them there. They, you know, they, they, somebody's always telling them where, what to eat. Somebody's telling them, you know, it's time to go to your next class. Somebody's telling them, do this homework. Like their whole life is about these things that are being put upon them, which is fine. I have no issue with that. But in training, we have an opportunity as coaches to create these situations where they actually can take some of the control back. And it might start, it might start easy at first, like limited choices. They show up and you say, today we were going to work on A or B, which one do you want to work on? And you already have the workouts ready. You know this is what's best for their development, but you gave them a choice. So they choose one of those, and now they feel like they have some control. With me, uh, our athletes, they started running their own halftimes. Like we got to the point where not only were they having input in training sessions, but I'd get to halftime and I'd send, I'd walk away or send them away, and they'd have two minutes to talk about the half, come back, we'd debrief, and then we'd start the second half. So they were starting to run their own halftimes. They had full control over the games themselves, which really, when you're talking about yelling at players for performance, that's the one time they actually have full control is when their body hits the water, nobody else can do it for them. It's all on them. But if they've got coaches that are scripting every single move and then calculating everything for them and then, and then yelling at them when they don't do it exactly right, then they lose control of the one thing they thought they did. So it is about those two big pieces. Create that intrinsic motivation and that joy, that fun, and then allow them to have some control over it. And a couple hints, it could be values, team values. Let them develop the team values. Let them develop the team habits of excellence. Let them develop the team mantra. Let, you know, let, like I said, let them have say in some of the training sessions. Those pieces of control, give it back over to the athlete. Man, that's awesome. You know, just listening to you talk, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do that really well. And then it's also, I don't, I, you know, at heart, I'm probably more of a control freak. And um, I mean, thank God my boss is great because she'll, she'll be like, hey, when are you going to let them pick or let them decide or not everybody has to do it your way. That's the, that's the benefit of working somebody, working with somebody for 11 years <laughs> that she just says, yes. not everybody has to do it your way. Um, man, that's. That's awesome. So, and as far as the choice thing goes, you have to be okay with them making the wrong choices. Um, so you have to be okay with them making the wrong choices. And what does the follow-up look like from the coach? Like after you make choices, how do you review that as a coach? Or do you, do you review it at all? Do you kind of just let them do their thing? Um, like if they did their, you were letting them do their half times, how would you re review that with them? So in the beginning, I, I wrote down, it was always come back with two things. One, what you thought went really well in the first half and two, what you'd like to work on in the second half. And usually that work on was a fix for some flaw they'd found, but I didn't want the negative. I wanted the solution to it. And they'd come back and they'd say A and B and I'd look at my clipboard and it was completely different. And so then we'd discuss a compromise. Well, why A? What, why do you think you, that went really well? What was so great about it? And what, what could you do to do differently in the second half? And then, you know, B, I'd say, okay, so what, what makes you want to do B? So it became very Socratic, asking them questions like, why are you seeing it this way? And what, in the beginning, it was still me helping drive that. Like I was still part of the process. I was still behind the wheel of the bus and they were shouting out directions, and then I was picking and choosing the directions with them. But by the end, and these were 12-year-olds and 8-year-olds, I was even doing it with 8-year-olds, they were actually coming up with some pretty brilliant things. I can remember the first time that my U12s came up and said, we did this really well, Coach, and we'd like, we really think that we need to start doing this in the second half because it will exploit A, B, and C and the other team and create more goal-scoring opportunities. And I remember going, looking at my clipboard and looking at them and thinking, you saw that? 
Like I didn't even have it on my clipboard. So I'm hiding my clipboard. Like, never mind. We're going with what you said. They are in the game. They're the ones experiencing it. They know how their bodies feel. They know how their teammates are doing. They know what the other team is doing. They're seeing it from a different perspective. I'm 30 yards, 40 yards, 50 yards away at sometimes, you know, on the sidelines, not part of it, not experiencing the stress and the pressure and the sounds and all of that of the game. So I see a different game from them. So letting them have those choices, they were part of it. Now, when they made mistakes, there's natural consequences. Yep. We'd make mistakes and, and I'd say, you know what, this was the game plan and we stuck with it and it didn't work. So what should we do differently next time? Where, where did this fail us? The big thing is we want to see our kids succeed. We want to see just, even the kids we coach, we treat them like they are family. We want to see them succeed. So we don't ever want them to fail. And when they fail, we want to fix it right away. But sometimes kids need to fix it themselves. So that's one of the big things is there are some nat minor natural consequences, like they may lose or they may not have the best performance in that moment. They tried something new. So we have to debrief on that and let them know. Failure is a road sign. We failed today. But that doesn't tell us to stop. That tells us we're either going the right direction or we might want to change course. So what is it today? What, what in the process let us down? Well, how do we fix that moving forward? What would you do differently? What should we be doing differently? Great. And I'm here with you. I'm going to help you but we're going to solve this together. And a lot of times athletes aren't used to having that Socratic method. They're used to, you know, write down A, B, and C, this will be on the test. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Read this book, it'll be on the test, which is fine. But, you know, when you get into a point where you're asking them questions about what they're thinking, feeling, and, and how they're acting, then they're really becoming these problem solvers. Yeah, why do you think coaches, because like you're talking about 12 and unders, some of your eight-year-olds, and of course things are scaled by ages. You know, a lot of coaches think, kids shouldn't they're not ready to start making their own choices till like they get to the high school level um like why do you think we don't let 10 and unders have more of a choice like what do you think is in the culture there or in the coaching community well we and i was the same way we've been through a lot we've got a lot of experience we probably competed at a high level ourselves we've coached at a high level we we've got certifications we've gone out and got licenses we've done training we've taken coursework so we're the experts. So it's really hard to think an amateur, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old would know better than us yeah. or that they would actually know anything. And there's this double standard that accidentally comes into our society where in certain situations, we allow a lot of leeway for our kids because we just know that they're intuitive and they're smart and they're, they're sentient thinking beings. Yeah, they're only 10. You'll hear people say, oh, he's only 10, but he's got the brain of a 20-year-old. He's really, you know. But then in sports situations, the double standard is they can't think for themselves. They're only 10. They're not able to process. Have you ever asked them if they get it, if they understand it? And that's, the eight-year-olds was a big risk with me. I was working with my 12-year-olds. This was an extremely intelligent group of, of athletes, like just total, total sports IQ. And they were very tactically and technically prof proficient. And they were the ones that challenged me to work with an eight-year-old. I had an eight-year-old team and there was, I think it was a sibling on the team or something. And so try with the eight-year-old. So I started doing this halftime stuff with the eight-year-olds. And I was blown away by how astute they were. They were seeing things too. They just sometimes don't know how to voice it. They don't know, uh, they, uh, that age, they don't know how to explain their feelings. They don't know how to explain solutions to things. They don't know how to, you know, they need a little bit more help with the puzzles. They need the puzzle key. The 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds, they may not need the key. Give them the puzzle, they'll figure it out. But the younger ones, you're going to have to give them a, a, a puzzle key as well. Yeah. And But what I found with them was this zest for learning. When you tap that learning mentality and get them on the learning journey by asking those questions, 
and by challenging the challenging them to have some control in the process, they go out and they they want to learn on their own. So I had a dad say to me when I'm working with the eight year olds, he says, "What'd you do to my daughter?" I'm like, "What what, what do you mean?" And he said. She's got me getting up at 5.30 in the morning to watch, to watch English Premier League because she says she wants to prepare for the games on the weekends. <laughs> like, she was homework to her. And that was the mentality that some of them took on. I, I can remember looking back one point, I got this completely silent bench, and I'm wondering if they're even still on the bench. And I turn around, and they're all, like, head and hands watching the game. Ladies, what's going on? And shh, we're watching the game for halftime, coach. Like, they got – they became intrinsically motivated to learn and, and grasp and draw more. Now, with those ages – I speak to them differently. You use their language. You use analogies that matter to them. You use stories that connect to the world they're currently in. So I would talk about social media and I would talk about cartoons and things that I knew they watched and couch things in their world. And I would use language that was more on par with where their language development or their brain development was. So I wouldn't be giving them very heady tactical things yeah. because at that age they may know. So it's not, you know, you want to turn the arm and at this at 90 degrees and everything like that. I might want to say you want to just give a thumbs down. You know, like it just depended on the age. I would change the cueing for things. Yeah. And and I there's a lot more guidance with them. And you're don't be afraid to say, I love the thought process. Absolutely love it. Love the thought processes. What else could we do differently? Like you, you might have to shift them over to something that matters because we're not going to be able to get unicorns flying in our rainbows, shooting Skittles at the other team after halftime. So we might need a different tactic here, kiddos. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And you know, there's different stages to it all. Something uh, that I should probably do more often is with my current middle school guys, we're really starting to learn how to work hard. Like we're doing some longer sets and stuff like that, which, which can be hard. And like to get them to get to get bought in more, I could give them 15 or 20 minutes to do their own prep set. But hey, the 30 minutes after that is the set I wrote for you guys because this is what we need in our training plan. And they're going to be 100% more uh, bought in to that sort of thing. Yeah, that's another great solution is the co-partner. Like you do this and I'll do this. We're doing this together. And they're learning to be independent, but you still have some opportunities to, to be a part. And of it makes it fair. Because fair, fair is fair huge. Is a big deal. Fair is huge with young athletes. <laughs> okay, so um, your book—it's about to come out. Yes. Um, if you're listening to this podcast on day one of this coming out, the book's going to come out tomorrow. But why did you write this book? What's the? If you want to go through the title and what you mean by mastering the language of excellence, just give us the your thesis on this book, and then uh, I'm gonna—I got some questions for the book itself. Sure. So the full titles of the Spartan Mindset, Mastering the Language of Excellence. We settled on the name because there are two stories in there. I wanted every chapter to have a story so I could show in very real terms some of these words being or, or phrases being used and how they impacted situations, performance situations. And I came across these two stories of the Spartans that were absolutely stellar. And so they became the opening and closing story of the book that just showed the power of a single word in altering the course of a civilization. And... We, we ran with Spartan Mindset because we just the book is very much about mindset, and we liked pulling the Spartans in. But a lot of people get this cynical, stoic, you know, violent, um, cold-hearted sort of – like that's – you know, I, somebody said the other day that's how they pictured the book. is like, you're, you're really big. But no, it's a very emotional book. And for me, the Spartan Mindset, the, the, the idea behind it is that language is really that key 
factor in performance that we tend to overlook. So we'll get the environment right, we'll do everything the way it's supposed to be, and then there's a failure. So it's either the failure in the way I communicated it to you as the athlete prior to the performance, or it was a failure of how your brain translated the language and then prepped the body for performance. So when it comes down to it, when we see choke points in high-stress, high-pressure situations, it's usually the words that are being used that have a deep impact on those moments, and people don't think about those. You know, if you've got a ten, if you've got a golfer on the 18th tee box winning the Masters by one stroke, and you say don't hit it in the water, you've just given language to that golfer for potential catastrophic outcomes because his brain's thinking about the water now. You gave the word, so that's the book. Is it? It breaks down three sets of words or phrases. Uh, one set of words are peril words. These are words that, when used in performance or high stress situations, they can actually cause peril in the performance. They can harm how well we perform. There are power words. These are words that should be used in these performance situations because they're actually helping us perform better. They're words that drive us forward or prep our body for um, movement patterns. If you study imagery, you know that imagery can cause muscle innervation. So certain words can actually trigger the body to be ready for performance. And then there are these transformational words, which are those words that not only do they help the performance, but they transform the people in the moment involved because it's such a powerful word and creates such a an emotional visceral moment for both for everybody involved yeah and uh you know how you said the book is emotional the stories you have in here about the conversations you have with your son one if that's not a testament of to like kids are powerful and they can think and give you good stuff like just your stories with your son are huge and my daughter is four and i mean i'm already i'm already getting it from her which is like checking me, you know, she'll tell me things like, I mean, it's very simple right now, of course, but I'll get onto her and she's like, do you think I'm, I'm bad? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, man, these kids, they cut you, they cut you down. They do. But, um, <laughs> okay. So, you know, we have these multiple sections. Uh, let's start with power words and kind of the ones that stuck out to me. I mean, we can go a little deeper. Um, you, so why is the word yes. you so powerful? Again, it's that control piece, right? So they'll spend their whole day being told what to do by adults primarily. And they'll spend their whole day with everybody sort of taking the credit for the world they live in. You know, I gave you your meal. I gave you, I gave you your studies. I'm teaching you this great. So their whole day is spent how everybody's pouring onto them. And they're just sort of along for the ride. And if you have the opportunity, and a lot, the biggest one that I always saw, and Jane Nelson, I talk about this all the time, is a kid will do something, and, and I used to do it. I, I'm, I was awful at this. I'd go, I'm so proud of you. And what Jane said is, in their brain, you may be actually taking credit away from them because you're like, I'm so proud of you for winning that game. And they're thinking, you're proud. I should be the one that proud, is, is proud. And so she's like, if we flip it and say, you should be proud of how you won that game, or you should be proud of your performance today, then it puts it on them that they did the work. And you see that in sports a lot of times, the IUE language. When kids mess up, I've heard coaches say, you screwed up. We had a game plan and you screwed up. You lost this game for me. Or they'll use something along that line. Mm -hmm. You blew the performance. And what it's doing is it's saying that they had no control in the situation and that you they lost it for you. Like Then the intrinsic motivation starts to become extrinsic because it's like, oh, I'm swimming for coach. I'm, I'm, or I'm, I'm playing for mom or dad. I'm not playing for me because they keep telling me how I lost it for them or I, you know, they did everything right and then I lost or I didn't perform. And so 
the big switch there is as, as leaders is we have to let them know that we were part of that. We just weren't ready today. We didn't perform at our best. I didn't prepare you well enough. We didn't, you know, things just didn't go the way they were supposed to go. We'll go back to the drawing board. I'm on board. I'm here with you and we'll get this done together. And I've seen so many coaches in big situations on the mic being interviewed. Gino, I tell the story of Gino from, uh, from, um, uh, UConn saying they just weren't ready. This team wasn't ready to win a national championship. We will get them there. Like he didn't blame them. He said, it's on us too, as a coaching staff, yeah. we weren't ready. Uh, and that flip is, is when athletes do something great, tell them they did it great, but give them the credit. You should be so proud of the work you've put in, or you earned this, you earned this as a team. This was, I was here along for the ride, but you did the work. Congratulations on it. And now you've put the ball in their court for control. Like they are in full control of everything they do and they're given credit for the hard work they've put in. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to show up and work even harder tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I tell people that my, my main job is to get, to help a kid build momentum that enough momentum that they get to a place where they don't, uh, they don't need me. And I know that might sound cheesy. This is actually called the momentum coaching podcast, but, but really like <laughs> when I get a new kid on my group, my number one job is to show them how good they can be, but I need them to realize it, whether we're analyzing how we did a week before in practice or how we felt a month ago or how we were competing six months ago. Like I want them to associate everything with themselves so that in six months, maybe they don't really need me that much as much. They need, they need me for the nudges, but they know what they need for themselves. That's uh, Katie Ledecky. She tells the story of like she knew what time she needed to swim swim at each age to remain relevant in the Olympic picture. Like she knew the times she needed to be swimming. That's that. That's the athlete you're creating. That momentum athlete. Yeah, and it's it's their sports. Um, and I, I tell my wife every day, I hope I don't ruin swimming for my kids. I want my kids to swim so bad, and my daughter's getting pretty close to the age of starting. And I'm like, keep it fun. It's theirs. We love swimming as a family. <laughs> But, um, so the next power word, um, and then we'll move on is, uh, yet. So what, how do we use yet? How do we, how do we use that word to, to motivate our athletes to become better? So Carol Dweck has a, she's, she wrote mindset, which is, we all still talk about it very much growth versus, versus, um, fixed mindsets. And Carol Dweck did a Ted talk called the power of yet. That's when these kids hit these obstacles that they just can't solve. They can't get past them. They can't overcome them. And they're starting, you're seeing that fatalistic spiral downward of they're going to turn a failure fatal by making it the last thing they ever do. But I'm done. I can't do this. And so the best thing you can do is say yet, yet. Now, here's the thing. The tack on behind the yet is what matters most. You can't do it yet but I'm going to come alongside you. We're going to work together. I'm going to give you the tools, the resources, the, the training, the skills, whatever it is you need so that you can do it. What would that feel like if you could do it though? Like that's where we want to get you is thinking about you will be able to do it. You just can't do it yet. And I'll tell a story I had was working with soccer shots and I had a five or six year old girl at the, she might've been a little bit older and I had the ages five to nine. So she was in that range. And we were working on juggling. And all I was doing is trying to teach them to get comfortable with the ball hitting certain parts of their body. And so we were doing ladder juggles where it's just like, you know, I'll bounce it off my thigh and I'll catch it. And I'll bounce it a second time and catch it. I'll bounce it off my foot. I'll bounce it. Just different parts of the body so they could get comfortable with the ball hitting them in those places. 
and every other kid's juggling and they're just juggle 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 and she's like literally hitting the front of her knee instead of her thigh and the ball's going 20 feet away so by the time i get to her she's almost in tears i can't do this i can't i said yet wait yet you can't do it yet let's get the ball i'm here with you we're going to work together we're going to learn together and so we started with just drop it once on the top of your thigh see the top of your thigh is like a table you want to hit it on the top of the table. You know, you ever played tennis? Yeah. Do you hit the ball on the end of the racket or do you hit it on where all the netting is? On the netting, then the top of your thigh is the netting. Drop it, catch. Okay. Now I want to try to do it twice. Drop, catch. And, and we do it like six, seven times. She can't get it. And then finally, the second, like the seventh or eighth time, she drops it. It hits her thigh and she hits it again with her leg and it hits her knee and goes flying away. But it was two. It was two. And she turns to me and goes, I did it two times. I said, you did it two times, kiddo. Go get the ball. She comes back and I said, here's the deal. I'll give you some fun homework. I want you to go home this weekend because we only saw him once a week. I want you to try as much as you can. I want you to use the tips I taught you. I want you to get out in the backyard when you can, and I want you to see how many you can get. My challenge to you is I want you to be able to come back and do three by next week. Three. Can you do that? And she's like, yeah, it's like fist bump. This is all you. You got this, kiddo. And so she's now got the resources and tools. I helped her. I gave her some tips. I empowered her to do it. You know, I encouraged her. And then of course I got her all fired up because I believed in her and I send her away. I forget. Right. I mean, come on. I, I totally forget because I'm almost, you know, I'm old enough now where things, things just kind of float out my ears. On no, I get it. So I completely forget. I'd given her this challenge. She comes back the next training session and I'm standing in the field with the kids where they're all starting to show up and warm up. And she comes running out of her mom's car, sprinting across the field going, five five coach read and i'm like huh and she gets to me and she goes i juggled five times <laughs> that's the power of yet right there. yeah that, and it was all her yeah that's great and and again and you combined those words so it was yet and then when she did it she did it you know she did that that was on like you literally said you did it right um that's on you yeah, yeah. I, I think that's i think that's huge and i think part of the word yet also is you just start I watch athletes in swimming with four strokes and you have to be very careful that at 12 years old, they haven't decided they're only good at this one stroke and they're really bad at this other stroke. And I call it mental prisons. Like we don't want kids getting in mental prisons before we even know how good they can be. Cause you're not going to see the best version of an athlete until they're 18 or later. Um, so we might not even get the best version of them, but that, that idea behind yet, like I'm not fast at breaststroke yet, or I'm not fast at this yet is, is huge. So, you know, this next section of the book, you know, we got into the pair of words, like the first one is don't. And I saw that and I was like, yeah, of course. And then I saw, uh, I saw win. And I was like, so this, this section challenged me a little more. So why is win a pair of word? So, and, and you're, you're asking about W I N and that, and I figured that would cause some controversy with people. I put it down as a peril word because when we, especially in developmental stages with our athletes, especially early on when they're still growing and learning and, and developing, if we focus too much on winning, then they, that becomes the goal. It does the goal isn't to actually get, become the very best at what you do or get better. The goal becomes just to win. And so kids take shortcuts and kids get frustrated when they don't win. That's the big one. If we're focused on the win as a, as a power, as a word, then that our kids will judge themselves on whether they win or lose. And they'll get so focused on it that they stop the development process. And my thought with my kids always was, it's not what you get when you, you arrive. It's who you become along the way. 
Like we're going to win, we're going to lose, we're going to have all these amazing journeys along the way. But getting the medal on the podium on the last day was just sort of like icing on the cake. You built the cake. That's what matters. Like don't think about just the icing or the candle. Think about the whole cake you built. And so that's where I was trying to shift with that word, the mentality away from win at all costs to compete at all times. I want my kids, I want to couch winning in the mindset of competing. Show up and compete at your very best every single day. You do that on a regular basis, and you're going to go against components who are better, but the root word of competition is competere, which means to strive together. So your opponent is actually an ally in helping you get better. So you swim against this kid who's beaten you six times in the last year, but every time you swim against that, that particular athlete, you're getting a little bit better. You're finding ways to potentially win. You become a better swimmer in the process. Someday you may beat that athlete. That's because of all the competitive work you put in not because you were just focused on the one time you lost. And that's, so that's really why I, I, I just wanted to, we see a lot of win at all costs behaviors in sports, mm -hmm. the cheating, the fudging on birth certificates, the, I don't want our kids having that. I want them to know that they just have to show up and compete. They're not always going to win, but as long as they give everything they've got, they're putting themselves in the best possible position to do so. Yeah. I think winning, uh, when you have that win at all cost mentality, it also goes into that progress is a straight line idea and it's like okay well i'm first when i'm 10 that means i'm going to be first when i'm 11 and i'm first when i'm 12 and it's like this is this is not how this is not how the game the game works like there's no guarantees like as fun and beautiful as sports are sports are are brutal right and you could have done everything right and you could still lose and that's the yes that's the game so the other pair word that um this one got me because I actually say this pretty often, which I'm um, going to stop saying it, is try. Yeah, man, try. That one, I was like, when a kid comes up to me and they're like, do you think you, we can do this? I'm like, man, we're going to try. And, you know, I don't say it condescending or anything. But um, anyways, could you could you elaborate on the try a little more? Yeah, so I tell a story that John Kessel had told at a conference we were at together. And John's a trip. John was with USA Volleyball for a very long time. And I, John has told this story, and I know the story, so I'm going to use it in the, the book. And I, I actually, I, I think I had already, yeah, I had written the book, and it was sitting on my computer at this point. So it was done. And I think I went back and added in some pieces after, the, you know, <laughs> being with John at another conference where I'm in a talk, and I get, and somebody says something, and I answer them with, we'll try, blah, blah, blah. And John, yeah, from the back of the room, like, yo, do I hear this? Nope. There's no try. There is no try. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, John. <laughs> like he he called me on the car before. I use try all the time. So I think I went back and I, I I don't remember if I wrote that that part of the story in there that he corrected me. But what I discovered with that word when John would talk when he told his story and he told a story I saw him in like 2016 or 2017 and he told it. You know the idea of try is a cop out word. It's it's. I think of the times I used it, and I think I tell the story in the book, you know, my kids would be like, can we get ice cream? And I'd be like, well, we'll try. And they figured out pretty quickly that that meant, you know, that or we'll see meant it's a no, but I'm going to string you along and make, give you a little bit of hope. Like you're going to have a little hope, you know? And so that's where I realized that that word was such a cop-out word because it's like, you know, somebody asked me to do a party and I go, oh, I'll try to make it. And then, oh, I didn't make it, but I tried my best. I mean, I told you I'd try. So, you know, I at least made the effort. So that was my fear with that word is that we fall into this loop of it gives our brains an excuse for not actually getting it done or doing it. Like if I continually say, 
I'm going to try to get to the gym today, then I've given myself an excuse for when I don't so I don't beat myself up or I don't hold myself accountable. Oh, Reed, it's okay. You said you you said you would try and you tried and it's okay. It's not a big deal, Reed. Versus no, it's time to go to the gym, buddy. You're almost 50. Like you got to, you know, yeah. so I, I, that's why that word to me, and I, like I said, I'm guilty. I use it all the time, but I've been trying to eliminate it from my mentality with a kid, with, with a youth athlete, especially if I'm talking to them and they've come up with a solution, my goal then is to get them to do it. So I don't want them to try it. I want them to do it. And so I really had to work on switching that out to, oh, great, go do it. Mm -hmm. Or you will do it next time you get on the field, not go try it. I want them to actually commit to doing it, have that visual seeing themselves do the activity versus that vague try, which maybe they can't even create the visual in their brain of doing it because they're using the word try. Yeah, I feel like this is a moment where like my daughter's four and she almost doesn't even understand try. Like maybe a little but when I tell her we're going to try to do something later, she it's either we're going to do it or we're not. Um, and it's it's just like that concrete thinking. I think uh, I think that I think those concrete statements, they matter the most. And that I, I highlighted something. I don't think I could find it this fast. But you had a line in there about like try feels inauthentic to your athletes and your athletes can feel that a mile away um so i i i try god see it's right there but <laughs> for me on a regular basis when an athlete asks if they can do something especially if it's a big lofty goal and they're legitimately asking me um i usually just say yes <laughs> or try <laughs> right because I, I don't know what else to say um with, with older yeah. athletes like we can talk about it more but um uh, Man, I hate the look now on I, a kid's face when they don't they don't believe that you believe in them. It's a yeah, bad look. They get a look, right? Yeah. So I was challenged on this one because I was with all of the sailing coaches from from Intercollegiate Sailing Association in, in their winter meeting this past year. And I did a little bit of talk and I brought in a few of the words from the book just to go through them. I was talking about sticky, sticky learning and messy environments. And so I brought in a few of the words just to give examples. And the one coach grabbed me afterward and he said, No, I have an issue with try. He said, I actually use that. And he says, I want to know if I'm doing it correctly or if, if, if you know, if we're, we found common ground where maybe that it can be used both ways. I said, yeah, sure. What? And he said, but my athletes, when we're doing something and it's not working and we've, we've done two or three different, we've done something two or three, three different times and it's not working. I'll say to them, okay, that's not working. Let's try something different. Let's try this instead. And I said, that's actually a great use of the word, but you've couched it in this, we're in a trial and error mode. And so we're going to do these things and they're probably, they, I can't guarantee they're going to end up in success, but we're going to, we're, we're thinking outside the box. I said, you're teaching them to be problem solvers by using it in that context where you and I are talking about it is, yeah, it's that, yeah, it's that when, oh, we'll try to get there. Coach, can we do such and such a practice? Oh, we'll try. Yeah. It's that soft commitment to action, right? Soft commitment to action yes. is never going to work. Um, okay. So kind of the next section is transformative words. And, you know, help, I think, I think that was the one that stood up the most to me. Um, help is not something I think we think of as a transformative word. Like why is, why does help, why does the word help matter? Help matters, especially from us as coaches, as these adults, these mentors in their world who they, they revere, they look up to us. Like there's a, there's a huge amount of influence that we have on their lives just beyond the game itself. I mean, how many times have parents come up and said, 
Johnny's struggling with grades. Can you talk to Johnny about grades? Or Susie's really struggling with her friends. Can you talk to her about, you know, friendships? But like they, the parents will come to us to partner with them because they know we'll listen. They'll listen to us and we'll say the same exact thing mom and dad said. But for some reason, the kids come home and go, can you believe what coach told me today about grades? And mom and dad are going, yeah, we've been telling you that for three years. So we have this, this obligation to these kids, but we're seen as infallible. And it's really hard to emulate somebody or to work alongside somebody who you think is infallible like you just will never be able to rise to the level they're at so when i was working with athletes i learned very early that i would use fellow athletes to demo things because if i demoed it all the kids are their eyes are glassing over like well of course he just got done playing his career he can do that move but look at him mike there's no way i can do that move so if a peer can do it then they go oh i might be able to do it if joey can do it so that was one thing but the other thing is they never saw us make mistakes so they never learned how to how to manage a mistake, how to deal with that disappointment and move on. So then, if we if they get if they make mistakes and they get in their own heads or they they melt down or whatever, we're you know we'll be upset with them like oh why did you act that way? Well, we have the perfect opportunity to model it. So for me, making mistakes or asking for help from my athletes became an accidental thing at first, or it was an accidental thing at first, but it became a habit. It taught them that I was willing to admit when I didn't know something, when I couldn't do something, when I needed help. It taught them to ask for help. So now they're turning around and they're seeking feedback. They're asking me to help them with things. They're they're okay with mistakes because they know they're part of the growth process and shoot, coach messed up and he's 900 years older than me. You know, he's been around since the pyramids. So <laughs> if he's messing up, you know, yeah. like that's how they look, you know. So that's why help is so transformational. And I say it in the book too, another piece of it is when you say help you're leveraging the strength of everybody around you like help means that you've hit a wall and something that you you can't complete but there might be people around you who can and so it's a it's not a vulnerability it's a strength it's a gift so when people say oh you know never ask for help because you're weak actually you're strong you're smart not asking for help means you stand there and you melt down like you see on the survivors and games like that where that one person has taken over and they're melting down and everybody else is going no no do it this way and they're like they just keep going and they keep going and they're you know and they're losing the event help is turned around and going i don't have this jump in that's real strength because you were powerful enough to leverage the people around you who maybe could help you solve that problem yeah you know when i read that section i had this vision because i've seen it but only a few times on my team where an athlete goes directly to another athlete to ask for help on a skill. And it's like, man, if you can have that all the time, the, your team culture would be amazing. I mean, sometimes we get the older guys to work with the younger guys, but it, of course it's like coach led, like, all right, guys, we're going to all get together. But when a kid on their own reaches out to help somebody, um, I think that's huge. And help is also powerful. Because not only is, are you admitting you need help with something, which is like the first step to getting better, like admitting you're not as good as you should be, you, you're also giving some kudos to your teammates, which helps build power and confidence in the people around you. Like if there's a person on your team oh, that's good definitely. on something. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think help, as this book ties together really well, you can't get to help if there wasn't enough placed on them, the athlete. Like if you, like if it's I, right, me, the coach, if I'm in charge of everything and controlling everything, when our skills aren't what they need to be, when our training's not what it needs to be, they just, that's when it's more on the coach. You have the kids revolting against, well, the coach's program, well, the coach's program, 
And that's because me at the beginning of the season, I said, this is my program. We're going to do it this way. Right? Like you can never even get to the word help if you don't set your culture up in the right way. Now, good call. Hope is a sign of intrinsic motivation, right? You've you've given them the, the culture they need. So Google did research on all of their, this was years ago, they did research on all of their most successful teams across the globe. And they came up with some values that seemed to stick across all those teams. And two of them were vulnerability and safe space. And that's what help is. Like you're teaching, if Google's most successful code teams or teams are doing it, then why aren't our youth teams? You're teaching them to feel vulnerable, be in a space where they can actually ask for help and not be ridiculed. And in a space where, like you said, like how, how more power, how much more powerful can you get when you ask a fellow teammate for help and they help you? It's two people, two people have gained so much from that moment. Yeah. And as a coach, especially when you have like your elite guys, your guys that are real, real good, it's easy for you, the coach to assume that they're fine. They don't need help because they're doing everything great and they're performing well. And it's, it's really easy for that athlete to also feel like they can't ask for help because they're the guy, you know? So yeah. anyways, man, um, I loved the book. Uh, we just went over a few of the words. It's very, very tactical things you can use um, on an everyday basis. Things I'm going to be talking to my coaches staff a lot. I know we talked a lot about kids and stuff and how the coaches talk to athletes in this conversation. But me as a leader on my team, it is also things I'm going to be teaching my coaches um, because the better communicator you are, the, the more you're going to get out of your athletes. And the more the more those athletes are going to get to becoming the person they could be, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Reed, um, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they, how would they get in contact with you? If you go to coachreed.com. You can find all my social media there. I'm usually coach underscore read on any social media. But yeah, if you go to coachread.com, you can find me there. You can also find out more about the book. And and uh, as you know, I, I do workshops and and I, I typically get pretty deep into some of the science and the geekiness behind it, but always try to give groups real practical advice that they can take away. Because my thought is, is that it's Scott Birkin's quote, but all progress hinges on the gap between those who talk in private and those who act in public. So whenever I work with groups, my goal is, is that I send you away in the very next day, you can apply something to your game that day or else the, the talk was a failure because that's the point is to help you get better every day. Yeah, that's great. And again, the book is The Spartan Mindset. Um, you can find it on Amazon um, or get it through Coach Reed's website. Reed, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Momentum Coaching Podcast. If you want to reach out to me, head over to Swim Coach Mike on Instagram. If you're looking for some free products and some premium products to help you become a better coach, go click the link in my bio and you'll be able to get some free resources. I even put out an underwater course that'll teach you everything you want to know about underwater training because if you've watched any of the awesome races from NCAAs this past couple weeks, you will know that underwaters matter. So go become a better swim coach. Check out the links. Let me know if you have any questions or if there's something you'd like me to cover on my podcast.